This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. Well, it's Monday and that means it's time for our Zoomer Squad. And just as the devastating outbreaks in long-term care are coming under control, there is a spat over a new testing protocol being put in place by one of the big providers, Extendicare. It's instituting voluntary on-site testing as a way to control the spread. And now the union is contesting this on Privacy grounds. Uh, I'm a little confused. Isn't this what everyone wanted? Easy access to testing? And speaking of long-term care, will the minister be hustled out in the cabinet shuffle that is rumored to happen soon? We'd like to hear from you. 416-360-0740. Toll-free 1-866-740-4740. Forty, And now I am joined by the Zoomer squad, Marissa Lennox, Chief Policy Officer at CARP, David Kravitz, Vice President of Zoomer Media and Chief Marketing Officer at CARP, and Peter Mugridge, Senior Editor at Zoomer Magazine. Hi, everyone. Happy Monday. Hi, Libby. Hi, Libby. So uh, let's begin with this spat that is apparently going to mediation. David, do you find this strange? Well, I'm I'm a little bit confused as to how it would be uh, a privacy violation unless the information was used for some other purpose than stopping, you know, infection in the home. And obviously, if you put a front page story in that says this this particular staff member got tested positive or something and did something that would harm them, but I, I don't I don't see how that's part of the regime at all. So I. I don't understand why this would necessarily be a problem in the first place. Well, and the the other thing is it's voluntary. It's not mandatory. Right. Right. Um, Maybe maybe I can provide some perspective here. So so on the so let me just start by saying I see both sides actually. On the one hand, extended care is doing the right thing: testing, testing, testing. It's what we need to be doing to ensure the safety of residents and to ensure that best practices are followed. On the other hand, why is Extendicare privy to this information? Can they not facilitate the test but keep that information private for the staff member? Is it because they have concerns that someone would lie about it? And either way, I mean, public health health would have that information on file and they would be able to know, God forbid, someone ignored a positive test result. But you know, is this a condition of having someone be tested in a home versus going to an assessment center for a weekly test? If so, you know, that could present its own challenges. So, it, you know, I guess that's what I'm wondering is, therefore, if this home is testing on site, is it a condition that they receive the test results first, it's then passed yes. to a staff member, or is there a way to have staff go to an on go to an assessment center, in which case that could present its own challenges because now there could be a lag between the time that somebody, you know, needs to be doing this. So I guess from my perspective, you know, do I think that that extended care, the, the long-term care home operator of, 
some 50 plus homes is being nefarious and collecting this information? No, I think that they're probably trying to cover their you know what and, and protect the residents in their home. And that is paramount to me. Well, yeah, yeah. So they would get it first. And, and now the union is saying they'd prefer if their people go to an assessment center. But I mean, I don't know if it were you, what would you rather do? Go to an assessment center and spend hours in line or just get tested at your workplace? <laughs> Peter? I, I would rather get tested at my workplace. I, I think this is a union thing, you know, like they they have to grieve everything that doesn't follow, uh, you know, these these privacy pr- protocols. So, um, you know, they're probably not going to fight too hard on this, but they just have to go on record as grieving it because they want the individual to get the information first rather than it to come go directly to the employer. But I, I think, you know, I, I think this can be ironed out quickly. And, uh, you know, we need to have these workers tested. Like we, we know in the past they've, they've spread, um, you know, the pandemic by not being tested. So, um you know, they just but need to iron this out. But it's fantasy land. What is the employer going to do with the information if there's a positive result? Obviously, they're going to say, this person is tested positively, therefore they can't be near the patient, so we've got to get somebody else in. I mean, it's not like they're just going to file it as saying, isn't that interesting, so-and-so tested positive. They need to have the information. The whole point of the testing is to take some remedial action if somebody's tested positive. Yeah. I, I think well, from the union's goes around yeah. in circles. And I mean, it, it, it also, uh, you know, I thought, well, um, we know that a lot of these workers has, have not been well-treated in the past, but in this case, if they had to go home and self-isolate, they'd be paid. Right. So That's correct. what's the problem? Yeah. Uh, it just seems to me, and given that it's voluntary, uh, you know, um, I, you know, if it's voluntary, then presumably you're okay with them having the information. Though, uh, Marissa, I do see your point. You know, I guess it would be possible for the employee to get the information first. Well, that's what I'm wondering. I mean, it does extend to care need to receive this information. Is there a way for them to facilitate these tests on site, which I think is the right thing to do? They should be. Frankly, every long-term care operator should be doing this. And I don't even know that it should be voluntary for that matter, particularly when you're dealing with such a vulnerable population. And we know 82% of COVID deaths occurred in long-term care worse it represented double the OECD average. So I think that we need to be testing more. Um, but is there a way for the for the staff member to get the test results before Extendicare? I mean, at the end of the day, Extendicare will learn what the test results are anyway, because the staff member will say either they're positive or negative and will or will not show up to work the next day. But yeah. there, are a host of, there are a host of other jobs, particularly in food service, with no reference to COVID here, where it is routine to test employees or prospective employees for drug usage, for example. And uh, surely there are privacy um, regimes in place where somebody fails the drug test, they either get fired or don't get hired in the first place, and yet that news is kept between the employer and the employee. This, to me, is a, uh, to me, I'm just... It's a mystery. I just absolutely have no way of understanding. But I don't know that it's just a positive or negative, David. I mean, is there information about their health history that's included in this? Health insurance numbers? Those are some of the... I would think that for the swab, it's either positive or negative. Negative, right. It's a COVID test. Um, At least that's, that's how it's presented. Marissa, you were talking about the numbers, and late last week, well, we learned a month ago, 
from Dr. Samir Sinha, who was involved in one uh, survey, that the rate for uh, the percentage of deaths was 82% in long-term mm -hmm. care in Canada, and that was the worst in the OECD. Well, we got another number last week that confirmed that. This time it was from CAIHI, the Canadian Institute for Health Information. And uh, the takeaway there, and, and you know, the they collect numbers. It's very hard to get a conclusion out of them, but the takeaway in this case was very clear. They said, that this is ahead of the second wave, and mm -hmm. if anything, they're saying this points to a need for national standards. Uh, do you see any action on that? Actually, the Prime Minister opened the door to that on Thursday or Friday. He commented and, and said that he would be looking at all options, including bringing long-term care under the Canada Health Act as a means of establishing national standards. So I do think those conversations are happening at the provincial and federal levels. Um, and I'm encouraged by that because this is the first we've ever heard rhetoric from the federal government about this. It's, it's not common for the federal government to dip its toe in what is traditionally viewed as a provincial matter. Um, but I think if COVID has shown anything, it's that we do need um, some leadership from the feds and even some dollars from the federal government on this. David? Well, I agree completely. And I think that the real problem here isn't that only that it's 82 percent. It's that it's 82 percent of a very big number and exacerbated by example after example, especially in the early days of neglect and disorganization. And it's not like we've got some rare disease that hit 10 people across the country and eight of them happened to be seniors. This was negligence and mismanagement on a grand scale that brought to light conditions that we, that CARP certainly and Zoomer certainly have been, um, you know, highlighting for years. So it's large in scope and it's uh, pointed out deficiencies that need not have been there, shouldn't have been there in the first place. I would just like to point out, I think it's I think it's important to recognize that compared to because you saw the report from from Kai Hai, which said that um, Canada's performance was was worse by far compared to most other OECD countries. And when you look at Canada's spending on long term care, and I use that as an umbrella term for both institutional as well as home care. Um, compared to most other OECD countries, we spend less of our GDP on long-term care, but Canada also spends significantly less of its long-term care spending on home and community care versus nursing home care. So if you look at Denmark, for example, which, you know, performed, way outperformed Canada, the Netherlands as well, and you look at the percentage of their long-term care spending on nursing homes, it's about 36% versus 64% on institutional care, Canada's the absolute reverse. Of our long-term care spending, which is very small, it's 13% of our health budget, sorry to throw numbers at you, but 87% is spent on institutions versus 13% in home. I mean, that's incredibly telling when you look at the numbers. Well, well, it is incredibly telling. And any time you ask a politician about it, they point to the last increase. And the numbers are not small, but they're just not enough. We need to fundamentally rethink our spending on long-term care as a sector. And yeah, this is a, it's a, Marissa makes a very important point. It's a strategic decision to say Canada has bet the ranch on big buildings. Mm -hmm. And 87 cents out of every long-term care dollar 
let those dollars be adequate or inadequate. When you got one long-term care dollar already, 87 cents is going into buildings, 13 percent, 13 cents is going to home care. And as Marissa pointed out, in Denmark, 35 cents is going into buildings, 65 to five times as much money proportionally in home care. And as a result, surprise, surprise, they're getting way better results than we are. So the whole thing needs to be rethought from the ground. And and I I have to say that just talking to friends, uh, people who are uh, not at the stage, but say within 20 or 25 years, even thinking, you know what, if I wasn't sure I wanted to go into one of those places now, now I am for damn sure. For sure. Yeah. And when we've surveyed our members, even before COVID, close to 90 percent said there's no chance they're going to be ending up in long term care. Now, there will always be a need That's not true, though. for long term care. Yeah. Well, no, no, no. Roughly, you know, five percent of people are in of seniors are in long term care. It's not a huge percentage. But the thing is, is that is that. Um, you're right. I mean, now, especially after COVID, uh, it's the last place that people want to end up. Having said that, there will always be a need for 24-hour nursing care. And so we need to do everything in our power to make these buildings safe for people to live out the rest of their days in, while also improving the ability for people to live at home, which is ultimately where the vast majority want to be. Yeah. If you took Denmark as a percentage of Canada, they got about six million people. If they were performing at our rate, they should have 1,700 deaths from COVID in nursing homes, 1,700. Their actual number is 202. Wow. Now, uh, speaking of long-term care, there's a whole other issue now that things are easing up, and and, uh, that's an issue on the other side of things, and whether the restrictions on visitors are too tight. And uh, Verna in Oakville has been waiting patiently. We've talked to her a number of times about uh, her trials and tribulations trying to see her husband. Hi, Verna. Verna, are you there? Yes, I'm here. Yes, so did you see him last week? Um, I did, but they had um, the, my, my meeting hadn't been scheduled properly. I scheduled the meeting, but um, um, when I got there, the place was sort of all closed down and there'd been a mix-up. So they, they dragged it, well, they brought him out. I mean, they're very good at Sheridan Villa, but they brought him out. He was confused. He wasn't feeling well. And he needed a drink, and and so it was a bit disastrous. I'm on my way to visit him now for my next um, makeup uh, <laughs> restricted visit at one o'clock today, one thirty today. Um, and what I just wanted to say, which is, I need to get it off my chest. You know how that feels. Um, I'd like this message to go to the whoever makes the decisions, the Ministry of Health or the Region of Peel or Halton or wherever. But I feel something has to change with the restricted visiting. Now, I wouldn't mind if it got even more strict if I was allowed in. I would be prepared to bathe in sanitizer, to have a COVID test every single day, to wear complete PPE, even a hazmat suit, if I was allowed in to care for my husband. He is deteriorating, as so many other residents in long-term care are, and it's breaking my heart and Something has got to change, especially if there's going to be a second wave. And at the moment, if the weather's too hot, my visitor will be my visit will be cancelled. What's going to happen in October when the weather changes? We can't visit outside 
something there must be there must be a way there so far we have not seen a recognition for the crucial role of family caregivers you are not a visitor you're a family caregiver and and you know it it breaks my heart to hear everything that you are going through even though things are getting better marissa because it's one thing to allow family members into a home to see their loved one, but we have to recognize that, you know, these are not just nice to have their essentials. And so much of what a family caregiver contributes to a resident's life is that caregiving. So it's one thing to just go and see them be able to say hello, but it's another to be able to support them with their needs because we know staff are stretched and they're not being met. So I completely hear you and, and, and we're on it. We're on it. At oh, good. So some changes might happen. Have I got some hope in my heart? Well, we're trying that we can't speak for the changes happening, but uh, Marissa and her team are totally trying. Yes, I do feel that family caregivers should be looked at separately to just visit. Yeah, I, yeah. I mean, yes. Uh, Verna, thanks so much for your call and enjoy your visit today. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Let's go to Pat in Toronto. Hi, Pat. Good afternoon. Uh, Libby, we talk and we talk and we talk, and we can do anything as long as we have money. But nobody wants to to tackle that serious subject about how are we going to fund all of the improvements we want to make. And that's why I go back to the one thing that I thought that our previous prime, our premier was after, which was to get a significant increase in CPP so that we would have people who, when they have to enter a, a nursing home or care institution, they've got money. Money otherwise just disappears. Family takes it. There's always, I mean, if you can get government to pay for things, people are, are great for that. They, they want government to pay. But for something like this, we've got to make sure that there is money available which can't disappear into the into family coffers or otherwise. Okay, Pat, thanks for that. Well, I mean, you know, we're talking about bringing this under the Canada Health Act. That's a, that's a mucho dinero, right, well, Peter? <laughs> well, it is, and, and there's, no, uh, there's no guarantee the, the feds are going to run it better than the provinces have either. Okay, that, yeah. there's that as well. Right, so there's, there's a bit of a gamble there. Um, they don't really have a... a, a great track record of, uh, you know, running things well or running things cheaply. Um, but the, um, the call is absolutely right. Like, uh, you know, um, we, we need all these changes and, and we're calling for them. And at some point, society is going to say, okay, we got to make changes. We got to pay for them. What are we going to sacrifice to pay for this? And, and uh, we're not there yet. We're, you know, we're, we're still talking about, you know, down the road improvements, but, you know, at some point, uh, this is going to have to be a budget measure. And uh, how popular will that be when it comes, you know, with young people, especially? Yeah, okay. well, I noticed that the young people, uh, their baby bonuses came a lot faster. You know, the, yeah, the special <laughs> top up for seniors, that three to five hundred dollars. Well, I gather the checks are supposedly going in the mail next week. Meantime, there are a lot of people who are having a hard time with all the increased costs because of the pandemic. Yeah, and, and that's just more of the same. Like, um, you know, if 82 percent of the deaths in any other institution um, 
it had happened in any other institution, there would be complete uproar. But because it's it happened in long-term care, it's it's still, you know, back burner issue right now. Uh, you know, we're you know everything else takes immediate precedence, but in in this sort of uh, you know, in, in, people just don't see it older people as that important, I think. And so, you know, until they do, until they're committed to it, um, we can talk about changes, but will they ever happen, you know? We started by talking about privacy concerns. Uh, so here's another one. And uh, the the governments are talking, uh, Ontario is uh, the testing ground for this new contact tracing app. And there's some privacy concerns with that, even though everybody's saying, well, the data is, you know, anonymized and don't worry about it. Uh, David, do you have a view? I think that the what I've read about the app is uh, fairly, I, I guess, for younger people that have a zillion apps on their phone, it might be routine, but it seems fairly laborious how it works after downloaded and then what it tracks and how it reports in. So... I'm not sure that it's going to be a widespread, you know, tens of thousands of people suddenly worried about their about their data. Um, but if all it's being used for is contact tracing and there is reasonable security, it doesn't seem like it's asking for much more than people are cheerfully already giving away with other apps. Uh, yeah, I, I, just because Google and Apple are involved in the back end, I I never trust big big data yeah. to, to use to, to use it properly. You know, I I think there's a fine line between protecting citizens and eroding rights. And governments all over the world, the U.S. especially, China too, are surveying their citizens in different ways in order to help you know control the spread of the virus. And last I read, you're right, Peter. Google, Facebook, they were in talks with the U.S. government to use. Um, location data from mobile phones to track the spread of COVID. The the UK endorsed the use of contact tracing. Canada has now endorsed the use of contact tracing. So the process is, which is, which is effectively, you know, you're tracing people that have come in contact with an infected person and and it's it's in in an attempt to to stem the spread of the virus. Uh, So we have seen this coming for months, you know, months ago, the prime minister didn't rule it out. I think, uh, I think, I would be concerned about what they would do with with that data information. Having said that, uh, this app itself is voluntary, uh, so I think that's important to know. If you're uncomfortable with that, you don't need to you don't need to use it. Yeah, and, we, and, and if uh, we've not already enough... been doing contract tra- uh, contact tracing manually, so. they're doing it by phone. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, uh, if are if they? Not, if I don't not know enough that. people sign up for it, it's not going to work. Right. Yeah. So you, I, you, know know somebody, I know somebody who works with the. Uh, a trillion hospital system, and during the entire lockdown, that's what she's been doing. She's normally got other duties there, but she's been doing contract uh, contact, excuse me, tracing by phone. Yeah, and but that's a little slower, I would think. Oh, very no, it's laborious. It's manual. I'm just saying that it, that contact tracing itself has has been underway here. Uh, whether it's adequate or fast enough or or scalable, of course, it's not. So the app would solve that. Yeah, I, I don't have high hopes for a lot of people signing up for that app. And, Neither do uh, I. And I, I've got to tell you, I'm, I look at that and I think, mm-mm, not for me. <laughs> right, exactly. How, how about you, David? Would you, would you sign up for it? or? I don't think so, I, but I, I'm sort of, uh, I, maybe not technophobic, but app, app, 
agnostic or apt-full, but I got enough yeah. going on already without <laughs> trying to figure out how this thing works. <laughs> Not to mention that I'm still using, it's an alleged smartphone by BlackBerry. It doesn't make anything very easy. Yeah. But I think Libby's right. I don't think it's going to be on a mass scale because it is voluntary. I don't see millions of people signing up for this because at the other end, I'm not sure that they're managing the other end anyway. You know, So you trace it. So now what? Well, well yeah, the, the idea just... is to, you know, you, you trace it to the individual and then the individual um, isolates for 14 days, you know, when, when they get a... It's when just faster. Them, if you can yeah. reach or, them or they go get a do. test or something, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So, where are we at? I mean, the, the Prime Minister just got up and said, hey, Canada, you're doing really well, but we have to stay vigilant. So, uh, Marissa, for the next couple of weeks, where's your focus? Uh, you know, it's, it's a good question, right? Because the numbers seem to be trending in the right direction. And, you know, as compared to what we're seeing in the U.S. with 9,000 new cases reported in Florida, 6,000 new cases reported a day in Texas. I mean, it's wild, the numbers that we're seeing south of the border. Clearly, our governments have done something right. So I think, you know, as we start to ease restrictions on businesses and on people, it's important that everyone remain vigilant, I agree with that language, and that we, you know, as we move forward, we just continue to do the best we possibly can, uh, because we've done so well up until this point. And one thing that I did want to get to briefly, and uh, there is a coming cabinet shuffle in Ontario rumored, and uh, w- one of the uh, questions is, will the Minister of Long-Term Care, Dr. Marilee Fullerton, is she going to get shuffled out? Should she? Mm-hmm. Yes, she's gone. I, you know, there, there has to be a scapegoat for all this, and I think she's a, she's an easy one for Ford to pick. Uh, and do you think that's that she deserves to be or not? Um, I, you know, whether whether or not um, anyone else could have managed it better, it's hard to say. But but just the results are not pretty, and it's in it's in her her uh, portfolio, and and I just, I just don't see how she survives. And the other thing, last week, I mean, this to me was one of the most astonishing non performances. Marissa, we did a we did a segment uh, about two weeks ago, and it was outside the Zoomer Squad. On uh, we did a segment on the possibility that nursing homes would be indemnified, and we talked to one woman suing, and she couldn't get her loved one from the nursing home into a hospital. And we have heard, I'm sure you more than I even have, from many people who are in that situation where the nursing homes would not allow their loved ones to be shifted to the hospital, and mm-hmm. and. Dr. Fullerton got up in the house and said, that's not true. Anybody who wants to go to the hospital, have their loved one go, can go. I mean, it was like Trump getting up and saying, anybody who wants a test gets one. She was clearly misinformed on that one because we have heard countless stories from CART members that have called us to say, I wanted my loved one to go to a hospital and the home denied them that right. Um, so that was your, you're so right. And, you know, it's interesting, though, because I was also reading, I do think that Peter's right. I think she'll be a, a bit of a scapegoat. And this is, this is inside baseball political. But I did read a story um, just a few days ago where she had put in a request for more funding pre-COVID to long-term care homes and was denied by the Treasury Board. 
um, the finance minister and the, and the premier. And so, you know, I think that there's a bit of a battle going on internally right now with who's going to take the blame for all of this. Well, putting the request in for the funding is one thing, but how the funding would have been deployed and, and uh, you know, I think they have yet to acknowledge that there were big mistakes made and one of the big mistakes was shifting people into long-term care to yes. clear the space sure. in hospitals. Yes. And like I said, I think to that was an honest mistake, but it has to be acknowledged that it was a mistake. I, I, I don't want to um, quickly. I don't want to put in a plug for her. I don't know whether she's going to stay or go. I don't have that <clears throat> insight, but I do want to caution that uh, that's not really going to solve anything. Because let's say, let's say, first of all, she's very experienced. She's a doctor. She's worked mm-hmm. on public health boards. She's been so she knows the game. But let's say he does that. She's a scapegoat. She's gone. In comes somebody new. Who's sitting in the room with that new person from the Ministry of Long-Term Care as he or she meets his officials and decides how to fix this? Who's in that room? The people that created this fiasco in the first place. Good point. If if I'm Doug Ford, um, Premier Ford, and I want to really fix this, I've got a lot of heads that need a role in the ministry other than my showcase minister who's really the front man or the front person anyway. So they've got some very serious managerial and competency issues inside the ministry. And if they don't uh, make some changes, then nothing's going to get fixed. It's just going to be all optics from the outside. Everybody's going to feel all you know, warm and comfortable. We got rid of this terrible minister. We got some new minister. Nothing's yeah. going to change unless they change the team inside the ministry. And and perhaps their strategy, you know, I was talking to somebody extremely senior in in this business, a CEO of, of Baycrest, and he calls the strategy to build the, the, the thousands more long-term care beds, which they went into the, the election with, he, he thinks that's what has to change to our earlier point about home care, Marissa. For sure. Yep. I do think it would be a mistake to to get rid of Minister Fullerton. She's new to the role, um, and I think that we what we need right now is some stability and people just focused on this as opposed to shifting it up and bringing in someone new who hasn't been in this position and hasn't seen what's gone on the last few months. I think, I mean, other than reading it in the news or whatever, but I think that I think that Minister Fullerton is, to David's point, she's she's highly qualified, and I think that she's capable, and I think we need to move forward in a in a positive way. If you want to fire somebody, start with those 189 inspectors that did nine inspections. <laughs> yeah, that's a lot idea. of excess payroll sitting right there. Okay, yeah. well, yeah, they're harder to fire <laughs> than the minister, opinion. frankly. <laughs> right. Yeah. I know, I know. I'm okay, we're, uh, we're, we're just about out of time, uh, so let's uh, go through and give you 20 seconds each, starting with Peter. Well, you know, um, Ford recently said, I stand behind Fullerton 100%. That's the writing on the wall. She's gone. Okay. <laughs> David? I agree that that's a, a traditionally a, a kiss of death, but as to where we go from here, I just want to remind everybody, 62% of all deaths in Canada are in Quebec, 35 in Ontario, the rest of the country, zip, a hundred and less than 200 deaths in B.C. after all this time. So this is not really, a, this is rapidly becoming a regional, regionalized issue, and we've got to pay more attention to the fact that we may need a variety of solutions, a variety of you know, release from lockdown at different paces across the country. And 
And as we reflect on the variety of solutions in long-term care, it must include a home care and meeting the needs of people in the community, which is ultimately where they want to be. Also, recognition of the support that unpaid family and friend caregivers give to people who save our healthcare system, according to a recent University of Alberta study, $66 billion a year annually. Yes. Okay. So until we talk again, which will be soon, thank you so much to our Zoomer squad, David Kravitz, Peter Mugridge, and Marissa Lennox. Thank you. Thanks, Libby. Thanks, Libby. Bye. Bye. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.